Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast. I'm Paul Millard, and I created this podcast because I'm passionate about making sense of the future of work and having conversations with the innovators, creators, and thought leaders who are carving their path in today's fast-changing world. You can check out the podcast and more on boundlesspod.com. So today's conversation is the full interview I did with Cody Royal. You may have listened to the mini-sode I published around the Super Bowl where we talked about the Patriots. Cody wrote a book, Where Others Won't, which I'm holding a contest and giving away two copies. You just have to retweet the podcast with the hashtag BoundlessPod, and I'll choose the winners uh, a week after this episode. In this episode, Cody and I go through many examples from his book about what the business world can learn from sports. I think Cody's story is pretty awesome, where he took a leap himself to go out as a freelancer, but was also learning a lot from the coaching he was doing on the weekends. And he was having the experience of a high-performance team environment on the weekends and then going into the corporate world, which he described as baffling. So I think he has a unique perspective and shares a lot about his own journey going from trying to be an Aussie Rules football player growing up in Australia to realizing he was better as a coach and then finally leaving the corporate world to uh, pursue some of his passions around this topic and doing that through things like Alt-MBA and the encouragement of other people. So enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think. Like it on iTunes. Leave a review. Would love if you'd share it with somebody, and if you're interested in supporting the podcast more, check it out on Patreon. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Cody. G'day, Paul. Thanks for having me, mate. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to the conversation today. You've worn many hats in your life, including athlete, coach, business person, and now author of the book, Where Others Won't, that talks about taking ideas from sports and applying them to the corporate world. I love this. I think a lot of people do make those sports analogies in the corporate world, but don't really get to where they where they come from and uh, what's driving performance in sports. So I have a ton of questions for you, but I'd love to just start easy and ask you about sports. What's the first sport you played? The first sport that I played is rugby league which most people in North America have never heard of. Um, I grew up in a place called Canberra, Australia. Most people don't know that Canberra is actually Australia's capital. It's not Sydney. 
um, Canberra's the capital. And when I was growing up, the only sport that we had there was rugby league. So it's a 13-man variation of rugby. It's a little bit like American football where you only get six tackles and on the fifth tackle you have to kick the ball away and give it to the opposition and then they come back down the field. So at that time, that's the only real professional sport that we had in town. So that was the first sport that I played. And then when I was eight, uh, we moved to Melbourne. And sport in Australia is very regional. And down in Melbourne, they only play Aussie rules. So Aussie rules has ruled the rest of my life after that. But yeah, the, the first sport was a bizarre one, rugby league. For me, my first exposure to Aussie rules football was, I think MTV started covering it, or maybe it was ESPN, but uh, it was somewhere in the 90s where it was like, oh, this is uh, a different sport. Yeah, it'd be ESPN. That's where most people have seen it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, as Australians have traveled, it's kind of picked up all over the world. And one of the things that I do, I coach our men's national team in Canada. Um, we obviously have a big rivalry with the US and they have a thriving league down there. So it's only played professionally in Australia, but it's definitely making its way all around the world. So you've done a number of things in your career now. So looking back when you were growing up, what were some of your interests? Sport. Um, my, my journey was uh, fulfilled with um, just being obsessed with sport. And I really only had one um, career path that I was interested in and that was being involved in sport in, in some way, shape or form. And as I got to draft age, which in the AFL is 18, I was there or thereabouts, but I had a few injuries and probably didn't have an X factor. And at that time, they were really looking for players with X factors. And so really I got to 18 and didn't get drafted and then had to scramble from there and it's probably reflective in what I've ended up doing. Like you said, I've worn a lot of hats and part of that process for me has been really starting to have to find out what I wanted to do at the age of 18. And ironically, it's led me back into sports, but I, I had to really start thinking about it at a late age. Yeah. So in your bio, you talk about you had this analysis paralysis. Uh when did that realization come to you? And that's obviously led to a lot of your success, as you say, in the coaching realm. But when did you have that realization that maybe uh, you're looking at it different than others? Yeah, it really came to the fore as I kept going up and up the levels. So my story was I I was in the, the state team um, at under 15, under 16, and under 18 level. And super competitive, obviously, everyone in Victoria, which is the state around Melbourne, plays Aussie rules. And so um, I was in that elite group at all those age groups. And then when I got to that level, I was just completely disabled. And it was like my talent just completely fell away as I looked around at people who were going to be my teammates. But um, I was just, uh, you know, I had imposter syndrome. I was kind of wondering why I was there. And all the things that had got me to that level ended up crippling me. And so it was probably, as I matured, again, you're still young at, at 16 and 18, you're not quite sure why. But as I look back on that stage of my life, it's definitely, it was paralysis by analysis. And I just, uh, I stewed on every little thing and wasn't able to live in the moment and show my true self out on the field, which is unfortunate, but it's taught me a lot of other things. 
Yeah, so so when you entered the business world, what were some of your reflections based on your previous experience? Obviously, competing at a very high level in a team environment, were you kind of uh, taken aback by how things happened in the business world? Yeah, definitely. That was one of the first things that really struck me about the business world was I'd always had this impression that it was team-based, and it, it certainly was to a certain extent, but not to what I was used to. I'd surrounded myself in sports my whole life and understood that dynamic. And then to get into the corporate world where someone is, you know, willing to just kind of, uh, let you die, um, out on your own. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a sink or swim scenario. I, yeah, I was a little bit put off by that and that, that, you know, stewing over 10 or 15 years, the first 10 or 15 years of my career has culminated in why I wrote the book, funnily enough. Yeah, I, I often find that people find what they're most excited by, by some of the things that frustrate them. Are there any moments early in your career that really stand out that just kind of drove you a little crazy? Why are things operating like this or uh, why can't we do it a different way? Not so much early in my career. It's actually late in my career as in within the last one to two years. I worked for one of the big banks here in Canada. Um, they're called the Big Five here. And going into that sort of environment, I'd worked with big companies before as a consultant, but um, this was the first time I'd worked inside a major, major corporation. And it was just baffling, the whole thing to me. None of it made sense. You know, I was coaching, you know, a national program on Saturday and Sunday with these elite athletes and we were building a team and then I'd walk into a, a, a supposedly a team environment from Monday to Friday and just shake my head and I just, I knew that that wasn't going to be what I wanted to do for a, a long time, but I ended up sticking it out a little bit longer, almost as fuel for, um, for the book, funnily enough. <laughs> When did you know you had to, had to write a book? Probably about a year and a half ago. I, I'd been blogging about the same topics for about five years and I had, it, it had started to materialize into something where I'm like, this is, this is a book and I can conceptualize the whole thing and it just, it made sense. But it, I wasn't ready when I started writing five years ago, but the, the, the added experiences on top of what I'd already spoken about started to make sense for it to be pushed into a different format. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I've talked to so many people that start writing and the unintended upsides they experience are pretty incredible. You, it helps you kind of make sense of what you're thinking and uh, you can look back and be like, oh, this is, uh, I've come a long way. Yeah, it was funny. I, I was at my best friend's wedding in February and I spent a lot of time with his family growing up because I, um, my mother was a single mother and so she was working and so I would spend time with my, my best mate's family and, and his mum said at the wedding that reading my writing, you know, having seen me grow up, she could see that that was the outlet that I'd needed. I kind of wasn't able to verbalize a lot of my, um, you know, annoyances with the world or, wow, yeah. you know, passions. But, but she had, you know, read some of the things that I'd written and, and it, she just knew that that was the outlet that I needed. And I, it took me 25 years to find it, but 
Uh, I, I can feel that too. Yeah, I, I personally love writing as well. It's really uh, helped me self-reflect a lot. And uh, yeah. I encourage a lot of people to just start writing, even if you're not uh, excited by what you're putting out there. But um, yeah, exactly. I, I'd love to get your reaction to something you participated in. So Seth Godin created this program called Alt-MBA. And I've been fascinated with this since it's come out. It's a one-month, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's a one-month essentially sprint where you're creating a lot of things, getting rapid feedback, and it's so much cheaper than something that might be a two-year grad school commitment that could put you in loads of debt and seems to lead to some pretty remarkable results for people. So I'd love if you could just tell us what the Alt-MBA is about and what were some of the... Uh, outcomes for you yeah absolutely it is uh, something that has definitely changed my life and changed my perspective on a lot of things both in the workplace and outside of the workplace what sold me on it was Seth essentially reverse engineered an NBA and took away what people came away from that program with and was able to build something else around it for the digital age and and for the agile age and for the, the current workplace. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. It's four weeks. You deliver 12 or 13 projects within that month and every second day you're participating in either developing a project, um, group discussions, um, and the, the projects range from everything to do with you personally and what you want to achieve and all the way through to things like start with why becomes a, um, right. a, a, a project. So, you know, really common kind of corporate um, business-centric ideas. And so the outcome for me was really uh, – it, it ended up being more of a personal journey for me than a, a professional journey. Um, but the outcome was I was challenged repeatedly by the people in my groups to finish the book, put timelines around the book, um, uh, and, and just leap. And so to kind of answer the, the first question that you asked last, what's it all about? It's really about forcing you off the edge and making you step into something, whatever that something is for you. And the great thing is that it, it is very much around based around you and what you want to achieve not going in specifically to get an an MBA for a piece of paper you come out of it with a bit better of an understanding of yourself personally and how you're going to achieve your goals so did you ever consider getting a formal MBA or anything like that no i'm a non-traditionalist and yeah. i have my own gripes with the education system <laughs> uh, um which we don't need to get into but no yeah, we can uh, we can save that for another uh, podcast. But I'd love to dive into the book here. So the book was a big outcome sure. of the uh, Alt MBA. Talk to me about the process there and any of uh, any learnings along the way of creating it. Yeah, so the book is what I discovered through the Alt MBA process is the book is really my baby. It's five years of thoughts and reflections and frustrations with the corporate world and and then laid over the top with my sporting experience. 
and some improvements that I can see or some, some little nuggets that, you know, a, a middle manager or a VP in a, in a company could just grab that little nugget and adapt it. Um, the process that I went through, I, I really wanted to self-publish and I, I wanted to go through all of the pain that comes with that. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, because it was my baby and I didn't want to change it. Right. I didn't want an editor to come in and tell me that that chapter wasn't going to make it because these were very specific thoughts. And so I went down that path and that has been the, the end result is obviously my, my accomplishment, but going through that process of going and having to find my own editor, which I down through the Alt MBA network, uh, going and finding a graphic designer to do my front cover, which I knew from my time at the bank, um, having to market my own book and my own ideas and get on my own podcasts. That has been the real learning for me and the greatest achievement and thing that I'm going to look back with the most um, uh, kind of astonishment of where I've been able to get to, but uh, also the, the the proudest part about uh, writing a book for me. And, but I, I also, you know, for a follow up, I want to go down the traditional publishing path to see what that's like too. Awesome. Um, so it, it's been a really, uh, you know, the ideas are obviously very unique, but I, I've tried to uh, go down a unique path of doing it too, just for the experience. Right. So love to dig more into the book and some of the examples you outline. And then I'll link up to the book in uh, show notes. So at a deeper level, it seems to be about changing the frame on traditional practices. I think you might agree with the statement that you're arguing that the business world leans on conventional practice a lot. You use a quote, we don't get fired for hiring IBM. Why are people in the corporate world so afraid of taking a different path? I think, yeah, there's a, there's a certain, um, there's a certain lethargy. And then, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's, um, uh, an ingrained idea of, of what business is and how companies work and, um, and people just don't like change. Like that's, it's a, it's a known thing. Right. And, but we, we built a system through the industrial age that, um, basically helped all these ingrained notions stay in place. Um, you just go to the same workplace over and over again from nine to five and then you check out and nothing ever changes and you get your money at the end of it and you retire. And at 65, this is it. And, you know, we built a whole, well, we built a whole world. The Western world is built that way. Right. And so that's why I think people are scared of change. And that's why, you know, the, the new age of whether it's Silicon Valley or whether it's, you know, fintech or whether it's Bitcoin, it's why people are scared of all these things. But I think that what that's like, what, what is that's now created? And this is what the book is about is that there's a, a real, um, opportunity to harness your people now and get the most out of your people in in order to get a competitive advantage rather than what we used to do was we would go and we would make a, a faster conveyor belt which right. could produce more cars faster and we would get to, 
to market faster or we would, you know, innovate on a particular product. But the book is about people innovation and, and setting your people up for success. And you're right that the fundamental thing for that is we need to change the framework that we've been working in for the last 50 years. Right. One thing that really kept popping up for me as I read your book and also reflecting on my own career, I think purpose is a big word. I think in sports, there's clear purpose, right? It's excellence and winning, and you want to win that championship. I think a lot of times in the corporate world, there are organizations that are just missing this clear purpose. When I reflect mm-hmm. on some of my best experiences, it was this huge goal of being a lasting firm or doing great work. Uh, why do you think uh, organizations really struggle to find these uh, driving goals? Possibly because they have gotten so big. I think we kind of, right. you know, I, I don't believe that the original intent was to be as big as a McKinsey or a, um, an IBM. And through that process, you end up acquiring a bunch of companies and you bring all these different parts together and people together and you're all over the world. And the, um, the interesting thing that I found, and this is, you know, Simon Sinek has been talking about this is you can actually have an overarching why or purpose of the company with compartmentalized whys underneath that that are still driving towards the ultimate goal. And the example that I talk about in the book, Niall Diggs, who was a linebacker with the Green Bay Packers. You know, the, when you think about it, you know, he was, he was a linebacker. He also played special teams. You know, he was in three or four different groups within the team and they all had different goals. You know, the defense had different overarching goals than the linebackers had and the, the whole team had different goals than just the linebackers and they had different ways of rewarding players within those different groups, but they're all headed towards the same destination which was to win games and so i think you know when you when you think about that from a corporate perspective it's okay for the accounting division to have a different goal than the overarching company as long as they're all going in the same direction and that's why i that's why i think there's there's a real body of knowledge that people are overlooking in sports because they just see it as a bunch of doofus testosterone filled (laughs) guys uh running into each other but underneath that is some really, really smart people strategies that you could look at and adapt to your circumstances. Yeah, I, I love that idea about different cultures and subcultures. I think there has been an acknowledgement that culture matters in organizations, but often it's, okay, let's design this from the top and tell people what it is. And uh, you talk about one example, which I love, which I think they do a great job, is Netflix. Uh, they yeah. published a culture deck, and a lot of people have seen this, but haven't really dug into what what it took to create it. I think uh, Patty McCord, when she talks about this, she's the chief people officer there, talks about this was a result of 10 years of work of trying to figure it out. And you can't mm-hmm. just create a culture deck. Uh, what have you seen from Netflix and uh, you learned from them? Yeah, I've been lucky. I, I sent Patty an email last week. I read the, well, the introductory chapter of her book, Powerful, which came out last week, I think. And, um, um, and, and she got back to me and I'm lucky enough, uh, 
going to um, exchange some ideas with her next awesome. month. But um, they, they are they are the bastion of corporate culture and, and their understanding of it. And I think the 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 nugget when it all boils down, you know, amongst all the the fluff and the the grandiose that comes with people speaking about Netflix's culture, the nugget is that that culture deck changes. Right. And it's not the same as the, the original one that they uploaded onto the internet. They've changed it three or four different times and they're going to continue to do that. And the best story I can say about Netflix's culture is that Patty McCord essentially lost her job because she had developed such a strong culture within that business. Right. So yeah. she, she, she was, um, yeah, basically put out of work by her own great work. And the company stuck to the culture above anything or anyone. And there, there are so many lessons to be learned from that, that no one is bigger than the company and that, right. you know, you know, Reed and, and Patty at the top were held to the same level that average Joe, who's coming in as the help desk guy would be held to. And, um, yeah, so, uh, Obviously, after people buy uh, buy where others won't, they should also buy uh, powerful okay. by Patty McCord. Awesome, we'll link that up as well. Yeah, I th- w- they actually have a pretty radical idea, and I don't think people see it as radical when they read it. They say we are a team, not a family, and the underlying behaviors that are lined up with that are saying you're constantly being assessed, just like sports. Like you might be cut from the team, or you might be traded. They want people who are doing their best work, and otherwise, they're not just going to give you a job just to hang out there. Yeah. It was funny. I was listening to your episode with David, and I was saying that, um, you know, the, the co-workers didn't show up to the funeral. Like, it's kind of that thing where, um, you know, it, it really is where we're, we're teammates. We're not a family. Like, these guys aren't going to be there for you afterwards. And if we all – I think the – the the way to navigate that is to be transparent about it and say you know uh, we need you to be on board for you know if you're going to be here for five years we need you to be on board here for five years and you're going to get a hell of a lot out of that and we're going to get a hell of a lot out of that and then if that ends we're going to shake hands you know thank you for your time and and we'll move on but you kind of need to know that going in rather than the way companies do it now is they sell you on this dream right, yeah. and then cut you six months later so that some guy in India can do your job for half the price. Right. Yeah, there's that underlying lack of trust, which uh, makes a lot of things people are trying to do, which are, are good initiatives that uh, kind of undermines itself. Exactly. So I'd love to talk about coaching. So you've been coaching since you were 24 and pull out a lot of examples in your book which are uh, which are just really great. I think you bring a great perspective to this as both a former athlete and a coach. But one thing that stuck out for me is you talk about coaching as a mindset that requires patience and practice. I thought this was a pretty unique insight when especially when you apply it to the business world. I think we think of things in terms of okay, this leader is a good leader. Except to really build those meaningful relationships, it takes a long time. And uh, 
we really need to shift our mindset in terms of how we develop people for that. So what what are your thoughts on uh, coaching when it comes to the business world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I, I really did a lot of work around coaching for the book and I, I wanted to be very particular about what I was saying. And the funny thing is when you look into where the word even comes from, it comes from the word stagecoach and that you're, you're carrying a load of you know, people from A to B. And I think that really reflects um, what it should be and, and it's kind of lost that edge to it. Um, but I think in terms of it being a mindset, uh, that's where that's where we fall down a lot in the workplace. It's where uh, it's seen as an event, and it's not an event. You can't coach someone. Well, you can once a week for an hour, you know, and you sit down in your weekly sit down with all your employees. But there needs to be it needs to be deeper than that. They need to be able to basically come to you with anything and not have to wait until the end of the week or whatever it is. And when you start to look at organizations that have implemented a coaching mindset throughout everything that they do, and that includes having the coaches be coached, right? the, the results are astronomical. And the, the example that I use is the Iceland soccer team where you know, 15 years ago they realized that they weren't going to be able to develop the talent that they needed to be able to compete with the other European soccer teams, France and Netherlands and Germany. So what they did was invest their money in coaching. And, you know, basically I think it's one in every 800-odd people in Iceland has a FIFA accreditation for coaching. And then they allowed those coaches to work with the youth players. So the youth players, the, the talented ones, had more fun. They were better coached. They wanted to stay in soccer. So they progressed through soccer. They got um, bought by bigger clubs in Europe, got better coaching. And then the result has been that the team is in the World Cup. It's the smallest country to ever go to the World Cup. And it's not the, it's not the players. It's the fact that they set up a coaching structure around them and it took 15 years for right. this to come off. But they, they were patient, like you said, and they stuck with it. And when it didn't work, they went back to the drawing board, coaching, more coaching, more coaching, better coaches. And yeah, there's the parallel in the corporate world is it's seen as an event. Go and coach this person. It's a one-off right. thing rather than, uh, you know, a 15 year thing. Right. Fix the performance. Make sure, make sure that person is better. Yeah. In, in an hour. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> Let's talk about some organizations. So I'm a big Boston sports fan, and you said you are a New York Giants fan. Um, as a Patriots oh, yeah. fan, um, I, we I'll definitely get to digging into them. But first, would love to hear how how did you become a New York Giants fan in Australia? I am an NFL fan from way back. I think we it was probably the Mid nineties, there was a highlight show that would come on at like eight o'clock in the morning in Australia on Sunday morning or something like that. So I'd get up really early to watch it. And, um, I ended up, I really enjoyed watching at that time the St. Louis Rams. And when Kurt Warner got traded to the Giants, I decided I was going to follow him. 
again, no allegiances. I'm just some kid in Melbourne, so I, right. I wasn't a local. I didn't need to be a homer. <laughs> and uh, and then Warner plays, I think it's like nine games, and then gets shipped off to Arizona. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to stick it out with the Giants. They just drafted Eli, and so I, yeah, I kind of stumbled on it. It, it wasn't deliberate. It was uh, following a player that I liked, and then I've just stuck with them ever since, and Eli has delivered on that, and so now I'm hooked. The Giants are a pretty incredible organization, and it pains me to say that as a Patriots fan, but the, the Patriots are also an incredible organization, but have been beaten twice by the Giants in the Super Bowl. I think they've really benefited from great ownership, uh, some great coaches, great managers. W- what are some things that have stuck out for you looking at organizations like that? Yeah, we talk about this a lot with our friends here when we go and watch games. There's... Um, and the Patriots have joined this realm of just really stable, really deliberate organizations, and you know what you're going to get from them. And as frustrating as, as that can be with what the Giants are going through at the moment, with having to basically strip down the whole organization and start again, um, the consistency of what you expect from them and the fact that they're committed to who they are I think is what stands out the most. And, you know, you see it with only a few, a handful, like the, the Steelers, the Giants, or the Patriots now, under Bob Craft, um, and Green Bay, really, are probably the, the other example. But the, the consistency and that we are this, and this is the way we've always done it, and we, we're going to continue to do this, and, and we're not going to be rocked by a two-game losing streak and fire everyone. Right. We're going to stick with it. And, you know, over time, again, we're talking generational teams here. Over time, you just build a consistency with that and people know what to expect when they come into the organization and they know what they're going to get out of it. And I think that's why people that leave the New York Giants, um, you know, players, they go and play somewhere else. Later on, in, once they've retired, they still identify as being a giant or a patriot or a right. packer. It's because it has such an effect on those people because they feel like they're at home. Um, and yeah, that there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, I think so many people underestimate how different it might be organization from organization. I think we, we see these teams on the field and say, oh, it's, there's uh, 11 players there, there's 11 players there. But in many ways, I've tried to reflect on the Patriots and seeing what they're doing, looking at it from an organizational lens, and they're doing things very differently. Uh, their goal is not just to win one game. They're uh, putting people in earlier in the season, trying different things, going against the grain constantly, and it's all with this long, long-term goal of uh, trying to win as many championships as possible. So what should an organization or even other football teams do when they think about copying models like this? I think you hit the nail on the head there. The the long view is really what you're after. The um, It allows you to set yourself up in ways that other teams won't. So what the Patriots are great at doing, and I talk about this in the book, is they know that other teams are going to freak out and overreact and trade them something that is actually worth more value than it seems at that time. 
Right. Second round, second round picks is the the big one that everyone talks about. But the Patriots just sit there and and they have a long term view and and then someone has a quarterback controversy or an injury or something happens and and they completely freak out and they go okay well you know why don't you give us your second round pick and then they do that to three or four teams and by the end of it it's seen as that they've fleeced teams but it's because that they're just consistent they're playing the longer game and don't really care whether they lose one game lose five games um yeah and i i think there's so much to be learned for that and it's it happens in the business world too where um Something happens and everyone uh, freaks out and panics and you fire this person and you do this and do that and, and it just unsettles everything um, and you do some crazy things and uh, you don't set yourself up for sustained success, which is what the Patriots have had. And it, right. it, to, to me, it's, it's not amazing what they've done because they've shown that they're unwilling to flinch because they lose a game or lose a player. And I think a lot of those advantages build. I was uh, reflecting with a friend and saying, Tom Brady and Belichick and Kraft have played almost two or three seasons of playoff high-intensity football. So once you're, right. so once you're aiming high enough, uh, you're getting more reps at that high-performance level, and suddenly the gains even uh, grow more and more. Do you have examples from uh, other teams or sports where that kind of comes out? Um, yeah, well, I think there's, um, I think there's some consistencies with that as well. Um, uh, you know, I, I, the recent example in the um, in the tennis world would be a Roger Federer, where um, right. you know he, he's just won his twentieth Grand Slam. Having come back, you know, he's, you know, in his late 30s and everyone had written him off, but you have to remember that he, he fully understands what it takes and what his body needs and, um, and the pressure that he's going to come up against and how to play against XYZ player. Um, and yeah, I think we see it in all walks of life, not just sport and business, but when you have that, understanding of what it's going to take at the highest of high levels, it kind of becomes self-perpetuating to a certain degree. And so that's why people that have one success often have three, four, and five successes because they now understand what it's going to take. Right, yeah, those uh, those advantages build over time. One example we talked about with the Patriots was I wrote about this in one of my articles of saying, okay, Tom Brady wins his first Super Bowl and succeeds. And what the corporate world would actually do in this situation is say, all right, great, you're really good at your job, we're going to promote you. But Bob Kraft didn't come on the field and say, Tom, we want to make you general manager now. Why do we have such a disconnect? Like We understand that the players should be doing the creating and the work in in sports, but uh, in the business world, we just promote people past what they're actually thriving at. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's a great example. That, that, uh, your whole article there, which is actually how we started talking, um, just hits a nail on the head. And I think it's, it's one of those old world strategies again. You know, you're good at, at putting, um, nuts on the, 
you know, on the conveyor belt and, and so we're going to promote you to the leader and, and you just keep going up and up and up and up. And the whole system is set up that way. But, you know, you're starting to see examples of companies like Google, um, who don't do that. And they have, and I think you mentioned this in the article as well. They, they have people that are earning more at the lower levels than the high levels. Right. Um, and so you're starting to see it, but it is really a structural thing. We need to completely revamp the, uh, the way companies do business and, and how they promote people or don't promote people. But again, it, it kind of comes back to, you have to be asking those questions of your people. Do you even want to be a leader? Right. Um, we, we don't even ask that. We just promote people and they take it because it's more money. But we, we don't know whether people are interested in leadership, whether they can lead. We just say, you're good at your job. And so we're gonna, now you're gonna teach everyone else how to do it. Yeah. The counterintuitive thing, maybe they may actually be a better leader by just remaining doing the work and doing it at a really well level, right? Right. And that was one of my real, frustrations i guess in in the corporate world was i just wanted to be a leader so i I actually would have taken a lower salary to be able to manage people and coach them and and help them do their jobs better but you can't do that unless you co the uh, toe the company line right for lot for long enough and basically outlast everyone else and then you get your opportunity to lead and uh, i that's really not a good way of doing it like i think we should be almost putting particularly leaders into some sort of leadership pipeline where they can actually utilize those skills. Right. I, I love that. That's one of my ideas I've been thinking about. We have career tracks for supply chain, operations, finance, but there's no career track where you're just saying, I am a leader of people. Uh, you kind of discovered this in sports, right. but uh, why aren't we uh, creating a path just to develop people to uh, inspire, coach, and lead? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, and there's, there's so many coaching examples now where, you know, uh, well, I talk about a bunch in the book, but, you know, if you want to talk about the NFL, Sean McVay, um, 30 years old, you know, in the corporate world, he doesn't get his head coaching position because he's too young and there's a more Great. experienced guy to come in and take that role. There's another example in Germany. Uh, coach by the name of Julian Nagelsmann. He has a, a small team. He was 29 when he took the job and he took them into the Champions League qualifiers within 18 months. Um, from when he took over, they were about to be relegated from the, the German first division. And so, you know, uh, when those, uh, there's proof in sports that when you put people in, tr- into a leadership career path, uh, it doesn't take them long to be able to be really, really effective. They're not even out of their 20s, a lot of these guys, and they're competing. They're inspiring and managing and leading teams at the highest, highest levels of sport. And there just has to be more examples in business where that could be the most effective thing to do rather than bringing in the 55-year-olds, you know, guy with super experience at this and that um, who maybe is checked out and doesn't really want to lead. So... I'd, I'd love to just get your reflection on if I'm a business person listening to this and wanted to know what are one or two things I should just copy and put in place in my business uh, tomorrow. The big thing for me would be, so I, 
throughout the book, there's really four quadrants that I talk about, recruitment, leadership, culture, and high performance. And the big change that I ultimately campaign for is for people to see those four as being interlinked. They're not siloed in any way, shape, or form, but they're treated as such. Again, we're talking about the old world where you go and have an HR division and you have a, this division and you have a, that, that, that. Um, I think what needs to happen is we need to reverse engineer a lot of that and, you know, an easy change to make is your recruiting. You need to align your recruiting with what you're trying to achieve rather than just grabbing a job description off the shelf. You know, the last accounts payable person that we hired, let's just grab their, their description and we'll put an ad out on Monster or whatever it is, LinkedIn, and we'll just do that again. Um, but spend some time worrying about the people that you're bringing into your organization, how you're going to lead them, what culture, what cultural elements they're bringing to the table, and then right. how, you, how you're going to manage them. Um, so it's not, it's, it's not two things, but it's really one big thing is we need to stop looking at our world as being um, siloed. Those four elements are very much together. You should be recruiting people, worrying about how you're going to lead them and um, and how you're going to manage that performance. And, and then, like we've been talking about, how is that going to change over time? Because once your top salesperson, who's you know was flying when they were 25 and single, once they have their first kid their priorities change and maybe they lose their edge and he doesn't care about being a ruthless salesperson anymore. How are you going to manage that person? And so that starts at the recruiting process. So if there is one little thing, I think really think about who you're bringing into your organization and why and how you're going to manage those people once they're in the job rather than sitting down and trying to checklist people. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? I love that. So if you were to give advice to somebody early in their career, somebody graduating college, or even uh, somebody maybe in your shoes at 18 years old who's pursuing sports, what, w- what would you have them think about that they might not be thinking about? Try a lot of things. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be on the Join Up Dots podcast a couple of weeks ago, which is a great podcast for young people that are coming into the workplace and you know, talking about how careers unfurl and career advice. And I talked about my journey as being one where I've tried a bunch of different things and I wear a lot of different hats and I, I do a lot of things and I've failed at a lot of things. And my, my advice for people coming into the workplace is that it's what you're going to find is that it's not as linear as you think it's going to be. The degree that you get may or may not end up being the field that you work in, probably not. The uh, you know career path that you think you're going to be on, you're, by the end of your your career, you're probably not going to be on that trajectory either. Um, right. Things are going to change, and and I think if you can acquire lots of different skills, one will really stick out to you that you want to pursue. But you have to try it first. You can't just um, um, you know stay on one trajectory and then you know pivot drastically when you're kind of in the middle because that becomes scary um yeah but, I lo- uh, I lo- yeah i love that uh i think 
you're probably a great example of that too, kind of combining different skills, that sports experience, business experience, and then you added, layered the writing on top of that and, uh, kind of led to something you weren't expecting. Yeah, exactly. I, and this is what I talked about on the other podcast was only in looking back have I realized that English was my best subject in school. Huh. And I actually, I've actually always enjoyed writing and I've ended up, it's taken, you know, uh, Geez, almost 15 years for me to connect those dots back up and, and for life to come full circle. But um, only by going through all the other things that I went through did I get to this destination. And so I think there's a, a certain element of having to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and maybe not being able to see what the future holds. Um, that actually it becomes a competitive advantage for you that you just end up you know, going back to what I was saying with the alt MBA, you just end up leaping and seeing what happens, and um, that becomes a really powerful thing if you harness it properly. What are one or two books that really influenced you, either on people, strategy, or that have influenced you in your life? Yeah, I'm I'm a big reader. I love nonfiction books in this kind of category: sports and business and original ideas. So, Legacy is one that really influenced me, which is about the All Blacks, the rugby team, and been lucky enough to speak to James Kerr, the author of that, who he was embedded in the team for a couple of months and, and wrote about, you know, how they had developed their culture and what it was all about to be an All Black. And it came at a really interesting time in their history where they weren't very good and they wanted to be good and they, um, yeah, it's a, a journey book that is that has sport as its background but it's also about business and life lessons and the other one would be originals by adam grant which i was reading as i was writing where others won't which really helped me because it's about how original ideas come to come into the mainstream and and basically the the effort that you need to go through to get them to be heard which was funny for me because you know, my particular area that I write about isn't particularly well received. And right. so I need to, I need to do extra to tell people to look at the body of knowledge that exists in pro sport because they don't really want to hear that. Um, so it was a really powerful book for me at that time anyway. And, and I think there's a lot of lessons in there for people that maybe are struggling to find a place for their thoughts. And they have a few ideas that are a little bit different or a little bit quirky, but they believe in. Um, it, it's a really powerful book to help consolidate those ideas and maybe even come away with some strategies as to how you can get those out into the world and, um, yeah, beat the drum a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. I love that book. Uh, I think there were so many, uh, insights in that book that I didn't expect and, uh, highly recommend that as well. So where can people find you, learn more about what you're up to next? Yeah, so the book's available exclusively on Amazon. Uh, so you can find the book there. And I also have a, a website for the book, so whereotherswont.com, which is where I'm continuing to interview people, talk about ideas that I see in the news or um, in Harvard Business Review or just still talk about those four quadrant ideas that I have. Um, I'm also on Medium, which is where we met, um, and so you can see most of my writing there as well. And uh, the next project, hopefully, is a, a podcast as well, a, 
a series about the book where I'm going to be able to go and grab people like Joe Dumas or Ted Sunquist, the guys that I interviewed in the book and pair them up with some business people and have some, you know, open discussions about recruiting and the workplace and performance and leadership, which I'm hoping uh, to get that out by the summer. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And I will definitely be a big, big supporter. Uh, thanks for coming on the pod today and, uh, had a great time. Thanks, me too. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been an incredibly fun experiment for me, and I'm loving talking to such incredible guests. I've received some awesome feedback, and I appreciate all the suggestions and just the praise. I'm kind of blown away. Uh, It's just so amazing to have such positive support. I hate asking for further support, but would love if you could share or recommend the podcast to one friend. If you are inclined to support more, I've actually set up a Patreon page, which I am experimenting with and potentially going to release some exclusive content and with the goal of building a community of people who are passionate of making sense of the future of work and enabling people to do work that matters to them. To learn more, you can check that out at bondlesspod.com. Again, thanks for the support. And if you have ideas, questions you want me to answer on a future Q&A podcast or just suggestions, would love to hear them all. Please email me at paul at think-boundless.com. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.